Welcome to the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. We know that switching to renewable energy can only address 55% of global greenhouse gas emissions. The other 45% comes from the way we make and use products in our current economic system. To fix the climate, we need to fix the economy. Welcome to the Circular Economy Show podcast from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. I'm Pippa Shorty, part of the team here at the Foundation. In this episode, we'll hear how innovation is key to transitioning from a take-make-waste linear economy to a circular economy, where through design, we can eliminate waste and pollution, circulate products and materials, and regenerate nature. During the recent COP26 UN Climate Change Conference, the Foundation's Emerging Innovators Manager, Ella Headley, hosted an innovation session showing how disruptive startups around the world are demonstrating viable circular economy business models. Ella spoke with Josephine Phillips, founder and CEO of clothing alterations and repair app Sojo, and John Aitchison, founder and CEO of Sellalong, which works with retailers to keep products and materials in use. Later in this episode, we'll also hear from Morgan Stanley's Audrey Choi, Infinited Fibre Company's Petrialava, and Zalando's Laura Coppin. Let's start by hearing Josephine Phillips discuss the creation of Sojo and its role in the circular economy. Um, So Sojo is basically a startup, a fashion tech startup that's working to help make the industry circular. And that is through making clothing alterations and repairs mainstream. So we started off by launching earlier this year as an app, which was the UK's first app for clothing alterations and repairs. It was sort of dubbed Deliveroo for clothing alterations and repairs. So we connect customers to local seamsters through a sort of rider network um, and app. Uh, But we're now currently moving into working with brands to help them facilitate alterations and repairs for their customers. Great. I think it's fair to say that for a lot of people when thinking about how to tackle climate change, sewing perhaps isn't the first solution that comes to mind. Um, So why is repair so relevant to this conversation? Yeah, I think it's quite a big misconception in the sense of sort of like resale has seen a massive boom and rental has obviously been really popular. But actually repair is such a crucial part to circularity, both for fashion and beyond. And I think it's something that we can't overlook. So increasing the sort of active use of a clothing item uh, by sort of nine months decreases its carbon and water footprint by 20 to 30 percent. So when you're allowing an item to be repaired, you're allowing it to have longevity. And in, in that sense, it basically reduces its carbon impact on the planet. Um, And it can't be forgotten. It's so important. And I guess uh, with that kind of solution also comes a lot of interesting data, which can help to enable more circular um, business models going forward. Yeah, so one thing that we're really excited by is that now we're working with brands, we essentially can tell them, um, we can use data to tell them what is needing to be repaired often. And that in and of itself feeds back into their manufacturing cycle um, to sort of make things, make items better at the point of manufacturing for durability. So being able to say that sort of that strap keeps breaking, it hopefully will change the way that it's designed and manufactured so that it doesn't break in the end. And what's that opportunity for working with brands? What's compelling for them about partnering you know, with a repair app? So from the alteration side, which is where we're sort of focusing initially, it's um, that the return rate. So 64% of returns are due to poor fit and returns are a huge environmental impact, especially when they are going from one country to another, sending it back, all the repackaging and even the labor that goes into it. It's sort of an environmental, financial and logistical cost. So what we're doing is saying instead of returning your item, tailor it locally. Uh, So for brands, that's a business development tick. It's a sustainability tick. Um, And then on the repair front as well, we want brands to be responsible for their clothes after the point of purchase so we want them to understand that that's not where the journey ends you are responsible for allowing your customers to repair their clothes um, so that you're not sort of feeding this cycle of clothes going into waste great so so joe is all about um, making repairs friction free and keeping those those garments in use for longer um, but you know obviously there comes a time when there's no longer a use for the garments in our, our wardrobe perhaps they've come to the end of their useful life um and that's where john comes along uh, can you talk to us about sell along sure and absolutely so so sell along is essentially a closed loop system that integrates into retailer apps and websites so the customers are able to just see all of their previous purchases press a button and have those things sold back instantly. They get instant credit for those items. And then we collect them for free and either resell them or if they can't be resold, responsibly recycle them. Um, And who's the client? Are you working with brands? Is it more about reaching customers? 
Well, that's a great question, right? So we're kind of a B to B to C kind of model. Um, so we spend an awful lot of time working with consumers because we need to understand how consumers think. We need to be able to get into their minds and be able to get them to think differently, act differently, all of those things. And that's really, I think, the core of our expertise because we spent a lot of years working on that. Um, but we partner with retailers. So retailers are kind of our you know, comrades in, in arms, right? We, we go out and we try to solve this problem of waste. Um, by working closely with them to integrate into their systems and to be able to help their customers get the full use out of every single item. Um, and, you know, I think we are all becoming familiar with the impact that uh, the fashion industry is having, uh, you know, in terms of climate emissions. Uh, it's, I think, globally, uh, annual carbon emissions, more global annual carbon emissions than international flights and shipping. Um, and I know when we spoke recently, you said something along the lines of such a big problem requires such a big solution. Um, so I wonder, what's the scalability potential of Sell Along uh, and could it be part of that big solution? I certainly hope so, right? So, um, so it is a massive, massive issue. And I mean, I think the foundation found that the total carbon footprint of just the fashion industry alone is 1.2 billion, and it's 1.2 megatons a year, right? Which is, you know, just an incredible amount of carbon going into the atmosphere. And so anything we can do to try to recirculate these things and bring them back. And I think, you know, what what we look at with Sell Along is just how do we scale this in a really massive way? And to a certain extent, we're trying to tap into, I guess you'd say, the mother load because we're trying to work with the retailers directly so that as they are selling things, customers are exposed to this idea of circularity and the, and the knowledge that whatever they buy now it's going to have a residual value and they can actually capture that residual value simply by touching a button. So they begin to think in more circular ways. They start thinking less about purchase cost and more about kind of usage cost. How long will I use this? What can come back? And just to give you an idea of the kind of scale involved, I mean, you know, a single player, you know, we worked very closely with Adidas for, for quite a while and Adidas alone sells 750 million items a year. That's a lot of stuff, right? And so, um, you know, so we our goal is to get 40, 50, 60 percent at least. Obviously, our, our ultimate goal is to get 100 percent of those things back. Um, but we believe that within the next couple of years, we can get somewhere between 40 and 60 percent of items sold back through the channel. So even just a single player like Adidas, you know, 350 million things coming back, which is you know, pretty fantastic. So, um, you know, I think the footprint impact of that, the lessening of the footprint can be really, really significant. If you look at, I know the foundation also researched, you know, if the use of things could be, if use of textiles could be doubled, then it would be a 44% reduction overall in greenhouse gases, so about 500 megatons. And, you know, if you spread that out across all consumer products, you've got textiles and electronics and appliances and furniture and all those things, you know, you're talking somewhere in the range of two gigatons a year of carbon coming out. And that, that's a super meaningful number, right? Really, really important. So um, why do you think that startups, and it's a question to both of you, um, have so much potential in this space? Why... Um, you know, how can they be the ones really at the forefront of tackling that 45% of emissions that come from the way that we make and use products and food? Um, well, I was saying sort of to you, Ella, the other day that it's a lot easier to do things from sort of the ground up. So um, if you're sort of a company with 2,000 people and you're 99% white and then you're like, oh, we want to be diverse, it's so much harder than when you're starting from the bottom and you get to build diversity from the ground. I think one thing that's great about startups is that fresh perspective and that fresh disruption. Like we are able to change things from the bottom. And one thing that I think is really important, though, is sort of marrying that startup with a bigger corporation or brand and allowing them to sort of cross-populate because then you have the great innovation that's starting at the beginning that's right from the get-go and then the brand is allowing that innovation to tap into their millions of customers already. Um, so I think startups are such such a powerful tool and one that sort of brands should be hopping on. No, I would just I would just echo that. I mean, I think startups really bring the innovation. They, we don't have legacies that we have to kind of, you know, push other business models aside. We just can pursue what is the pure business model. Um, and then we can gain scale by partnering with big brands and big retailers that have the reach, have the customer base. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think that's really the way this has to happen, right? I mean, you know, circular economy is a systemic it's a systemic problem, a systemic solution. And we have to work with all the major players. And so it's not even really just brands on the front end, but also working with, you know, 
groups like Infinite Fiber on the back end to be able to get a complete ecosystem that reprocesses these things and makes use out of them. Which I guess brings us to, um, helpfully to my next question, what needs to happen to meaningfully scale circular economy solutions? I think probably my immediate reaction is that it needs to be a true commitment to the circular solution. So I think a big problem, I mean, I speak to the fashion industry, but a big problem in the fashion industry is greenwashing. And I think one thing that's really important is actually putting your money where your mouth is and actually implementing these circular solutions. So, you know, we're currently um, about to launch a partnership with Ghani. And one thing that they're offering is free tailoring and free repairs and that's really them saying we are committed to circularity we are committed to the repairs we are committed to reducing our sort of environmental impact from our returns and we're going to put money behind it and we're going to partner with a startup to do that and I think that that is really what is necessary for this change to happen there has to be an actual commitment a financial commitment um, to enable the change to happen otherwise it does become a bit wishy-washy <laughs> right so, I mean, you know, from, from our perspective, there is kind of, and you and I talked about this, Elle, I mean, there's, there is kind of a hole in all of this in the sense that um, everybody recognizes that extending use and bringing things back through a full cycle has this direct impact on reducing carbon. But right now, there's not the infrastructure in place to actually have that effort recognized, right? There is no baseline set for how much a product is used on average or any consensus about how to measure against that baseline or even any acceptance from CDP and other accrediting agencies as to you know, how that carbon reduction gets credited to that organization. So as things stand right now, we have this enormous potential to really accelerate this and drive it forward with the formation of carbon markets with all the net zero goals. But at the moment, extension of use can't participate in those net zero goals because we don't have the fundamental underpinning to measure what is being done. And so I think you know, this is something that the foundation has actually been very helpful on. I mean, a couple of years ago, you know, I worked with the foundation in Arizona State, and we kind of got a project called Project Wherever that's being done through the Sustainability Consortium that's looking at clothing and, and literally tagging RFID tags to measure how often someone wears this shirt or these pants or whatever and how often they, they wash those things. Um, but it's, it's a very small project at this point. And the need here is massive, right? If we, if we can't set a baseline across not even just fashion, but all products, we can never really get the credit going. And I've, you know, I've worked with a very big US retailer on this issue, and they are gung-ho to try to actually jump in and do this as part of their broader net zero aims. But there's no way to measure it. And so they can't get credit for those efforts. And it's, it's not that expensive a problem to solve. I mean, it's you know, a few million dollars, basically, over two or three years. Um, but it has to come together. It's just it's kind of this elephant in the room of being able to really take advantage of the sustainable or the kind of climate reduction benefits of circular economy. And we need to get that in place. Josephine, you are nodding a lot there. I wonder if you had anything to add. <laughs> no, I completely, completely agree. I think one thing that I sort of was feeling when you were talking as well is it's the data and it's also yeah. the transparency. Yeah. Like yes. if from the corporate side or sort of the brand side or the corporation side, it's, there is so little transparency in the industry. Um, and I know that we have these big figures about how bad it is, but on a sort of brand by brand or case by case basis, you have no idea what is happening to the items that are returned. You know, it, it's sort of like, it's a scandal when you find out that they're being burned or, you know, it's, it's being unearthed as opposed to all of that being incredibly transparent from the beginning. And I think one thing that the industry needs and circularity needs is that data from the beginning um, to then be able to make the change. So I completely agree with what you were saying. And I think it can be added as well um, to just like, yeah, transparency transparency, data, um, so that we're able to realise the impact and shift from startups or from circular initiatives. Um, and we're joined by Audrey today, who's going to be talking about finance um, a little bit later. Um, but I wonder, kind of hearing you speak about this lack of um, visibility, transparency, data, understanding, you know, that the, these solutions even have a role to play. We're seeing a lot of uh, funding being mobilised towards climate solutions. Is it harder as a circular economy startup to to attract that financing or to to sell that to to the funders? Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, I think one of the challenges we face is getting funders who truly understand the circular principles. Because I mean, specifically, what we come across at Sell Along is you know venture capitalists who go, "Oh my gosh, you guys are great. You're a re-commerce company. You resell things. Why are you taking old socks?" 
right? And I mean, once we get put in that bucket, it's very, very difficult to move forward and do anything productive. Um, and so we need to find funders who understand the systemic nature of, of this. They understand the kind of long-term transformation that needs to, take place, needs to take place and how you actually get into consumers' heads and get them to think differently, right? You can't, you can't go to a consumer and say, look, hey, if you buy something from me, there's some chance down the road that I might take that back and do something with it, but I'm not sure yet, and I'll, I'll tell you later, and we'll find out, right? Versus anything you buy from us, we're going to buy it back as soon as you're done using it, regardless of condition, right? That is a fundamentally different message, and it gets people to think in fundamentally different ways. So you've, you've got to look at it kind of holistically, and getting investors that really understand that and can really think that way with you and hopefully even help you in that regard is really critical. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also would add the fact that I think with a lot of venture capital, for example, going into startups, there definitely has to be an alignment of mission because I think quite often with sustainability or sustainable initiatives, it doesn't, it comes sort of out of friction with profit. That doesn't mean they can't be profitable. I mean, that's what we're building. But it's like, sometimes you'll be making concessions, whether that's even the bag that you're using being more expensive because it's made ethically when you're delivering back items. You know, it's the, the ultimate aim of VC is to sort of get the most out. And that means race to the bottom or pushing down sort of all financials in the company where you can. And I think one thing that is really important is finding people who align to that. I think it's quite difficult, but there are sort of funds cropping up that are really dedicated to this kind of thing. So there are there are funds that are sort of, yeah, climate focused. That does sometimes mean massively like EV and things like that. Um, but I think that things like in America, there's a fund called Closed Loop Partners and they only invest in circular solutions. And for example, if you get them on board, they totally get it. They do it day in, day out, and that's all they're looking for. Um, so it's really exciting to see those kind of things um, there as opportunity. But I do think there needs to be a broader concept from the venture capital and the funding that's going into these startups in general to be completely on board with circularity and completely on board with sustainable um, sustainable companies. Thank you both for joining us and for sharing your insights. Um, so we've heard now from two innovative solution providers operating in the spaces of repair, recycling, reuse, um, and conveniently have also heard about how partnerships with bigger business are such an enabling factor in helping ambitious scale. Um, so now we're going to dive deeper into exactly that. I would like to welcome, if I move over to this side, uh, Laura Coppin, Head of Circularity at Zalando, and Petri Alava, uh, who is the founder and CEO of Infinited Fibre, to join me. Hi. Hi. Um, Laura, what is Zalando's approach to climate and circular economy and why is it important for Zalando to be leading efforts in this space? Thanks, Ella. Hi, everyone. So firstly, I think it's really important to mention that we're very aware that the fashion industry is a major part of the problem facing the world today. And we take that seriously. And we believe that a shift from a linear to a circular economy and our business is essential. It's essential for the future of our business and it's essential for all businesses to make that transition. So what we're doing is we are um, working towards a goal that by 2023, we apply the principles of circularity and extend the life of 50 million fashion items. Alongside that, we're committed to becoming a circular business. And we want to look holistically across the entire product life cycle. So in our strategy, we look at design and manufacture, use, reuse, and closing the loop. And in each of these stages, we have different initiatives that demonstrate our commitment and our action towards making a change. So to go into a bit more detail about those four stages. So in design and manufacture, I think we're all aware that this is where the biggest impact on the environment is created, between 80 and 90%, depending on where you read the information from. In any case, what needs to be done there is to redesign the way we design products. And what we're doing is we are working with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation um, design guidelines, and we're partnering with Circular Fashion, which is a Berlin-based startup, to create our first circular design criteria. And that basically means that products in our private labels and hopefully with our brand partners will be designed with these principles. So the first principle is that they're made from safe, recycled and renewable inputs. The second is that they're designed to last longer. So they have technical or emotional durability built into the product. 
And lastly, that they can be remade. They can be remanufactured or they can be recycled back into new textiles again. And <clears throat> the criteria is one thing, so that we have a standard, we have a common understanding of how products should be designed. The second thing is actually putting that into action and seeing the complexity of the design and manufacture of products to meet all of those things. So we've recently launched a collection called Redesign with our private label business, and they meet all of those three steps. So safe, recycled, renewable inputs, durability, and they can be recycled. And these products also have a digital product passport attached to them. So customers can scan a QR code and they can access further information on the materials, the production, how to take care of the product, how to repair it, and also how to trade it into our e-commerce business. And what we've seen through um, qualitative research is that customers are looking at materials, then care, and then trade in potential. So that's our design and manufacture stage. In the use stage, this is when a customer owns a product. So how can we support them post-purchase in keeping their products in use for longer? And so we recently launched um, a proof of concept in Berlin uh, where we enable customers to access local service providers similar to Sojo, where they can alter, clean, and also repair their, their garments. And this, this can be for any uh, item. It doesn't have to be a Zolando board item. In the use sta reuse stage, sorry, this is um, demonstrated in our business through our re-commerce arm. And we have launched that last year in September. And we have scaled an assortment from 20,000 items to 200,000 items that customers then can access to buy pre-owned uh, pre fashion. And then in the closing the loop stage, uh, this is where we see we would enable customers to trade in their, send in their items that are wearable or non-wearable. We would sort them and then connect them to our recycling innovator network. So we recently invested in the Infinited Fibre Company and Petri will tell you more about what they're doing. But for us, of course, this holistic view, all of the four stages, how a product flows across those four stages is integral to our strategy. Uh, and this is fundamental to a circular economy is making sure that you factor in how a product flows uh, and connecting the dots. And of course, with Infinita Fiber Company connecting the output that they have back into the design stage and the cycle begins all over again. Great, so on that note, it'd be good to hear more about Infinity Fiber. Great, uh, so Infinity Fiber is a fashion and textile technology company. Um, and putting very brief, uh, we stop waste being wasted. Uh, sorry to disappoint you, uh, but we are not recycling. So what we actually taking, we take in uh, uh, waste, different waste streams like uh, textile waste or cardboard waste, paper waste, and turn that chemically into brand new fiber. So as a, as a matter of fact, we, we discuss about regenerating something new out of waste. Uh, and the out, output is, is a new high quality textile fiber, which looks and feels exactly the same as, as cotton. So that's the kind of, of crucial thing for, for, the, for the fashion industry. Uh, uh, the technology improves say, the, what we do. Uh, we take in those waste streams. And, and first, chemically are removing or, or purifying the material. So we are removing polyesters, nylons, all non-cellulosic materials, and naturally also mechanically removing buttons and zippers. Then we are mechanically breaking down on molecular level the cellulose into liquid cellulose, and from liquid cellulose are regenerating the new fiber. And also in the process, we are adding some, some new features to the fiber. So the fiber is by nature antibacterial, and also the... Uh, in the process, we get nitrogen bonded with cellulose, which improves radically the dye uptake of, of the fiber. So it's not only kind of, of recycling or regenerating something out of waste, but also, let's say, adding some value to the, the fiber itself. And uh, the great value for, for the textile industry or fashion industry, they see that there's the capability of, of replacing virgin cotton. There, there are pretty ambitious targets with, with some of our brand customers, like replacing 50% of the virgin materials. Uh, and uh, then naturally the, the, the problem what we are solving is that, that we are taking something out of, of, of landfills or incineration. You say today there's a one truckload of, of, of textile waste landfilled or incinerated every second somewhere in, in the world. And uh, what it does in incineration or landfilling is that, that you are releasing methane or, or you are releasing uh, CO2 emissions 
And then secondly, also, we need to remember that so as, as consumers, let's say we are relatively simple, we want to have certain functionalities from the textile. So we, for example, want to have a easy iron um, features on our textiles. And what it means, it means there's a lot of, of surface treatment chemicals. And in the process, we are remo removing all of, of that, which otherwise would be on, on landfills and with rainfall flushing into the groundwater. So we are solving a lot of other things. And then naturally, we also have capability of, of replacing certain amount of, of, say, polyester usage. Naturally, the, the fiber is cellulosic, so as such, it, it's not a kind of natural polyester replacer, but we, should, we do definitely see a strong trend on, trend on the industry to replace also certain amount of polyesters. So that's what we do. And, and Laura, you mentioned that Zalando has invested in Infinity Fiber. I wonder if you could speak more about what that collaboration looks like. Yeah, happy to. So... As Petri mentioned, a large amount of textiles end up in landfill or being incinerated. And only 1% of textiles gets recycled back into high quality materials again, and that needs to change. And we see the opportunity to both support financially, but also providing feedstock into the infinite fiber process so that they have a material that can be regenerated into their output infina. So <clears throat> both the input is something that we can provide, products that are beyond repair, that have no resale value, and their only destiny is then hopefully to be recycled and not end up in landfill or being incinerated. And we want to be able to safely do that with the textiles that can't be resold. What we're also doing with Infinite Fibre Company is um, using some of their infinite material with our private labels. <clears throat> Excuse me. So there is one product that we've tested this out with right now, which is going to be on show at the Waste Age exhibition at the Design Museum in London. And this is also connected to a digital product passport, so you can learn more about the Infinite Fibre and how to take care of it. And this is one example of how we're working together. Um, and of course, our investment in their future flagship facility that is going to be built in the coming years ahead. And for us, it's really important that we use our size and scale to support startups and innovators. We can't solve the problem on our own, and we're very ambitious with our targets. So partnering up um, with the best talent out there is really part of our strategy, uh, and collaboration is therefore key. And I guess, you know, it's, it's great that... For, for a startup, there's that opportunity to really pilot on that bigger scale and, and to have that opportunity to, to really demonstrate the, how the product, how the solution works even. Um, but I wonder if, if you could talk a bit about what the collaboration enables for Infinity Fibre. Sure. Say, of, of course, there's say, 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 several advantages of working with the companies like Zalando or, or other investors. We raised money from Adidas, uh, H&M, Bestseller, Zalando, so the kind of really strategic investors. Um, from one hand side, it's, it's, it's very important for us, as, as we are technology geeks, we are chemical engineers, not, not understanding that much of fashion as such by nature. So it's very important for us to understand from, from these co great companies that what's the need and what's the usage of, of the fiber. So really finding out the, the uh, kind of, of uh, uh, the whole uh, spectrum of different applications, how the fiber needs to be uh, say behaving, say whether it's T-shirts or whether it's, it's men's shirts or whether it's, it's sweaters or, or denim, really understanding in depth that, that what's the manufacturing chain, supply chain demanding, and what are the consumers demanding. So, and we definitely have learned that, that the, the kind of, of ver very, the important thing is, is, is finding and, and being able to uh, leverage the versatility of the fiber so that it doesn't set, let's say, limitations for design, it doesn't set limitations for different applications, so finding really the uh, features of the fiber on the level that it, it, it's, it's versatile and has a, has the, a massive uh, opportunity on the markets. Secondly, naturally, the, it's, it's always about funding, as, as we are, let's say, in, in a pretty capital-heavy industry as such, uh, even though we are a technology company, but so far, we've been raising 50 million euros. So, of course, the kind of funding has been enabling us to produce enough on the pilot scale factories uh, to enable these brands to test the material and also bring some collections to the markets to validate the, the functionality on commercial scale. Then, uh, now we are heading to the next, next challenge. Um, as as um, we understood that, let's say, a very important part of, of, of our technology licensing business, our, our primary business model is licensing the technology. Uh, is, is that say, 
we need to be building a demonstration plant, really a commercial scale factory, which I say rap rapidly speeds up the availability of, of the commercial scale on, on the commercial scale, the, the fiber on the market. So now we are raising 350 million euros. And of course, it's very important that at least these people and companies are joining us and showing to the industry, not to the kind of typical VC investors, but really showing to the, the kind of heavy scale investors that there's a trust on our technology. Uh, so the, it's really, really radical the, the, that, that we have got the, the support from, from these companies and working on a day-to-day basis with them. So I wonder, you know, a lot of big businesses such as Zalando have internal teams, facilities even dedicated to research and design. So why is it important for you to work with startups? Well, it's fundamental because we can't do everything and we don't have teams with knowledge on how to regenerate materials. So this is why we partner up because, you know, the, the systemic shift that the industry needs to see is not going to happen with one large company doing it on their own. Yes, we can use our size and scale to leverage, but really partnering up across the entire value chain is, is fundamental to make the shift. So we're partnering up with all sorts of different startups. So Infinited Fibre Company, we're also working with Save Your Wardrobe, which is a London-based uh, wardrobe management app, and we're using their aftercare solution. And this gives us the agility to be able to innovate, and it also provides them the chance to test out their solution to our very large and growing customer base. So we have 45 million active customers. We sell over 4,500 brands on the platform. Um, so we know that we have a responsibility because we're that big, but we also see that there's a great opportunity to make that change, the customer behavior change. Um, and I think that's also key with the collaboration here. It's not just partnering up with startups and other businesses, it's also partnering up with our customers, educating them, upskilling their knowledge on how to take better care of their products and purchases. So it's, it's really holistic also in that sense, in the sense of working with customers, working with different startups, uh, and that combination of um, effort together is really where the difference can be, can be made. Um, and how do you make sure that the collaboration is effective? You know, you're coming at it as two different companies, very different scales, very different ways of working and, um, you know, similar ambitions, but equally, you know, different shareholders, that kind of thing. How do you make it work well? Um, I think it's, it's really important that you have clear uh, goals set about your collaboration, that it's mutually beneficial, that you discuss and agree on an eye level. I think often big businesses um, can come in and be very big in the room and I think it's really important to be at the same eye level, understand the different challenges that both sides face, um, being transparent, communicating a lot and understanding the different goals um, and the mutual goals that come together. So it's, it requires a lot of discussions up front to make sure that you have the right objectives in place. And I think, you know, we spent a lot of time doing that, uh, several months discussing how we were going to work together. And I think th that was time well spent to make sure that we, we're on the right trajectory together for the coming years. Uh, I think it's, it's a le learning by doing, really. Uh, say the good example is, is that, say, probably we have been a bit naive in this industry. And, and let's say startup companies, growth companies, has to be naive sometimes. So. When we started uh, looking at that building the flagship factory, which is a, a major, major investment, uh, we thought, okay, sure, sure, it, it's easy to get the kind of off-take agreement signed with these giant customers. Uh, that, that, sure, they love us and, and they like the material, so why not they will be signing, say, multi-millionaire agreements. Uh, but then, let's say, it's been kind of, off, let's say, working parallel, hand in hand and learning from each other, say, three years ago, let's say, we got, got an absolute no from, from, the, from the several of the giants. And wow, we never signed any off-take agreements. Now we have signed several of those. So kind of being persistent, learning from each other. And I think it's, it's been a really great understanding from, from both of us actually, that if the brands are not carrying their responsibility, responsibility, if they are not, say, changing the game, 
if, 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 if the brands are not really impacting on the, on the very long and difficult supply chain, the change will not happen. So they, because they have the power, they, they are the ones who decide the materials. So the supply chain will be moving if and when, let's we'll say, we work hand in hand and show the, the possibilities of, of the new technologies. And then the brand's role is naturally, let's say, crucial on, on, on signaling that there's a high demand and there's kind of a willingness to pay for it. So. It's, it's really working day to day together and, and learning from each other. Actually, I'd like to pitch a question um, following up from what John was saying on data. I'm curious to hear how Zalando is responding to that. Obviously, as a, you know, you, you've got this strategy, but fundamentally for a strategy, you need to understand where you're coming from. And I wonder um, how you're uh, you know, working to, to get the data in the first place. So data is fundamental, fully agree with John. Um, and also not easy to capture because we're talking about data that goes from how a product is produced right through to the end of life solutions. So that data capture is incredibly complex. And actually what we see with the digital product passport or the potential of that is a way to capture that data and store it in the right way and make sure that you have the history of how a product has been used, reused, resold. You know what material it's made of, so at the end of its life it can be regenerated, recycled back into new materials. And that data flow is, is necessary and you need it easily accessible. And that's what the Digital Product Passport basically enables. And exciting with the Digital Product Passport is it's part of the sustainable um, product initiative coming out of the EU, where potentially, still to be confirmed because it's not coming out until Q1 next year, uh, mandating or at least part of the Digital Product Passport should be applied to products. And I think that's exactly what we need because we need to be incentivized, we need to be motivated, we need to have mandates in place so that that data is captured in a safe way. About the data, sure, let's say we are a deep tech company, so it's all about data. So we, we're measuring every day what we are doing in the process and, and let's say using the data to improve things. Then, of course, of course from, from, from time to time, we also receive very valuable data from the manufacturers, the yarn spinners and fabric producers, how the fiber is behaving in, in, the, in the manufacturing. Then we are getting the same feedback from the brands that, let's say, what about the design aspect and that sort of thing. So, yes, we do, let's say, receive a lot of data and it's highly valuable and of course, with startups, you've got that difference that, that, again, to Josephine's point, that if you're starting out from a place where you're trying to achieve something, you, you can put in place the infrastructure to always be tracking all of that data, and um, which, again, uh, another... Um, reason that it's so powerful for these collaborations, I imagine. Um, I'm going to rehash the same question that I asked to Josephine and John and ask, um, what do you think is needed? What are we missing um, to meaningfully scale these solutions? I touched on it a little bit already, but regulation and it's coming. And for us, we're closely following the work of the Eco Design Directive, the SPI, Sustainable um, product initiative and I think this is this is what we need right now I think we we obviously need to continue the efforts in scaling up most promising technologies uh, we need to continue supporting our customers and changing their behaviors but what it really can be incentivized by is regulatory requirements on businesses so this is something that we really need and strongly back uh, and it's coming soon, so hopefully that makes a big difference. Uh, absolutely, I agree. So the, if you look at, let's say, that there's happening a, a natural transition, we, we do see that, let's say, that's happening, uh, but the regulation can definitely, let's say, smooth and, and level the playground. As, as, let's say, we are competing with technologies which has been existing 150 years. There are a lot of, of engineering done to kind of increase the productivity um, and, and understand that, let's say, in order to, let's say, scale up our, our technology to, to get a kind of massive in impact, we need a massive scale. In order to get a massive scale, we need to be also affordable so that, let's say, it's really kind of on par with the existing materials. Uh, that doesn't happen overnight, so uh, regulation can definitely, let's say, level up the, the competition. And let's say, I know that, for example, Levi's is, is having discussions in the U.S. with the taxation authorities. The same is with Adidas in, in Europe, trying to find out different mechanisms to level, level the playground. Then I think also, let's say, the kind of, of leveraging the transparency of the consumers could be helping so that, that the people really understand that what they are paying for and, and what's the kind of cost to the environment. 
So the yes, there's the, still a lot can be do uh, because I, I'm afraid that let's say naturally the transition is just too slow. Thank you both very much for joining us uh, and for sharing your stories. Um, yes, do clap. That's good. <laughs> Um, we have one final speaker for today, um, Audrey Choi. Uh, Audrey is the Chief Sustainability Officer and Chief Marketing Officer at Morgan Stanley. Um, Audrey, we've been talking today about how we scale circular economy solutions. Um, and as we have already discussed and as laid out in the Foundation's finance paper, the role that financial services can play is really important to that transition. Um, from your perspective, which is quite a unique perspective, heading up, uh, you know, a world-renowned um, sustainability effort, uh, a sustainability effort for a world-renowned financial institution, <laughs> what motivates financial services to get involved and, and to, you know, um, fund circular economy innovation that, that really can help to tackle some of these global challenges? Great. Uh, well, thanks so much. And uh, we're super happy to be here because we're just enormous fans of the work of the uh, Ellen MacArthur Foundation and what you, the focus that you've brought to circular economy and sustainability. You know, for us, I think um, the journey really started uh, for us a while ago, about 12 years ago, actually, at Morgan Stanley, we founded our Global Sustainable Finance Group. And that was really born out of the conviction, which frankly was not normal for Wall Street necessarily at the time. We were we had the conviction 12 years ago that finance absolutely had to be a part of meeting our, the biggest sustainability challenges we have. Right? Government leadership is necessary, philanthropy is necessary, individual conviction is necessary, but there's no way that we're going to meet the, the issues of social justice, climate change, pandemics without massive amounts of private sector capital. And so when I joined Morgan Stanley, I thought, you know, how do we figure out what are the things that actually are profitable, interesting, high growth opportunities that are also going to drive more sustainable solutions. And so we really started initially with saying, um, and you know, Josephine, I love that you sort of raised the issue that, you know, traditionally many finance folks think, oh, if it's, if it's social or environmental, it's not as profitable, so therefore not as interesting. We really spend a lot of time saying, is it? Can we actually prove whether or not you can do sustainable business? You know, does it have to be at a discount, or can you be, can it actually be higher growth, more interesting? And um, and you know what we found is uh, that actually, if you do it right, and there's a lot in those five words, right? If you do it right, um, but that's why you guys are all here and such great innovators. If you do it right, you can actually build a business that is sustainable and higher growth, um, right? Because ultimately, if you are recycling materials more, you're being smarter about the full life cycle of those fibers. You're in costs are actually lower. If you are actually doing a great job with your your social contract with the community, your customers are going to love you more, be more loyal, and really choose that brand. Um, and from a financial perspective, we actually did we did an analysis of um, eleven thousand sustainable investing strategies over fifteen years of performance and comparing their returns to traditional strategies. And what we found was a couple really interesting things. If you looked at the traditional strategies, of course they had a bell curve return, you know, bell curve um, of returns because everything in life has a bell curve shape when you plot it out, right? When you did the sustainable strategies, they actually sat right on top of that bell curve. So some investors were lucky or smart and outperformed, some investors were less lucky or less smart and underperformed, but there was no difference in return because of sustainability. So it was it was not a hex or a magic feather. What was really interesting though is that when you looked at the downside volatility the sustainable funds were lower in downside volatility. So because basically they were thinking more about environmental issues, about full life cycle issues, and you actually, it's, it's like it's, you have, it's like having that spidey sense of, this is not gonna be good in the long term, so why don't we, how do we think about climate change? How do we think about all of these issues? So, we'll stop playing with this. <laughs> um, and so we found that, and we've been just doing more and more evidence that finds that really, you can do both. You can have a profitable business, a high growth business, and you will actually have more customer loyalty, higher, actually higher innovation, um, and lower regulatory costs if you're building all of that in together. Um, and so for us, that was kind of the beginning of the journey, and then circular economy, and really, frankly, the focus that the foundation has brought to it um, was was such an exciting, really, you know, sort of next iteration of it, where we really just saw that that, that had to be the way to, to to be to be circular and to, to focus on it. And um, we actually just released a poll, a survey last week that we did of, of investors. And I'll just share two interesting things. One is um, overwhelming support from investors or interest by investors in sustainable investing generally, which is great. Um, but circular economy 
was right at the very top of the issues they were interested in. Circular economy, plastic waste reduction, um, and um, climate change, and social justice. Those were like, they were all really neck and neck for the top themes in, uh, that investors were interested in. And millennials, 99% um, of millennials said that they were interested in that. So I think that's you know, super encouraging. Again, the 1%, who knows what, what's going on with them. But the 99% of millennials are really going to, you know, I think, be your future customers, funders, and, and employees. So. And I guess there's also that sense that you know, we can't carry on with business as usual, that the linear take-make-waste way of operating, it's, it's not resilient. It's not going to deliver returns in the long term. Um, so why organizations with breakthrough ideas, what makes them uniquely positioned to, to address these challenges? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, just on your point about business as usual, right? Especially here at COP. I feel like we have to kind of remember what's going on, right? If you look at just, we were, I was just in a panel in the other room around, um, around ocean health. If you just think about the in social costs of the pollution, including largely plastic and other things that we're putting into the ocean, $2.5 trillion a year of social costs from pollutions into the ocean, right? And then you, you talk about what we need to invest in renewable energy and the transition. If we could figure out a way to redirect that waste into productive use, we might actually have a, you know, a, a big piece of that there. Um, and in terms of um, innovation, right, it, it's absolutely what we need. Because you know, I, I think if you take the long view, right, so, so and you were, you were talking about you know, the, the garment industry and a couple hundred years right? That was all innovation. It was all breakthrough innovation that's led us to have all these fibers that today we don't know how to recycle, right? But it was, it was an act of, actually in the case of plastic, an, an accident of innovation that led to this thing. And they were like, what is this thing? It's viscous, it has all these properties, we can make it thin, we can make it thick. So innovation created plastic. Big business, big funding, and inventive designers and marketers figured out how to make this thing used everywhere, right, to, to market that. And, and then you also had marketers who, in many cases, had the innovative idea of saying, ooh, let's teach people to throw these things away after one use so they'll buy more. Right? And so, frankly, we've gotten ourselves into the situation with innovation, with finance, with scaling, with hard work, with incredible marketing. And we just need to kind of re-engineer those. So one of the innovators that we're working with right now, we launched something called the Morgan Stanley Sustainable Solutions um, Collaborative. And we basically scour the, the world for innovative, just new ways of thinking about it. One of them that I think is particularly relevant today is a small company we've decided to, um, to work with called Cyclus. They're in, in Indonesia. And they're trying to do sort of a back-to-the-future twist on the milkman. So if you think about a poor rural community like the ones they're working with in Indonesia, they have, um, over the years, had billions and billions of penny sachets of soap or shampoo to be able to make that accessible. Fast forward a couple decades, you have billions upon billions of used sachets of plastic trash in the ocean, washing up on beaches, polluting neighborhoods. And they said, how can we go back to a better model? And so what they've done, but, but let's also be smarter about it. So actually through an app on a smartphone, you can actually say, you know what? Today I need two ounces of cooking oil, one ounce of dishwashing liquid, three ounces of detergent, and the kiosk comes and dispenses it to them in their reusable containers. And not only does it just, you know, take away all of that, um, that trash, but it also gives them actually a fair unit price. Because one of the interesting things where I think circular comes together with climate justice and social justice is, you know, those penny sachets of soap. We're charging the poor much, much more per ounce than the rich were being charged if they could buy it in volume. So I know this is my brain has been focused a lot on just how all these th threads, no pun intended, are coming together, um, where you just need people to rethink our business as usual processes. And you can find that if you do it right, and back to those five magic words, if you do it right, it can be higher growth, lower cost, and, and more sustainable. And those five words are really important, right, if we do it right. And, and as you say, there were really good intentions around the creation of single-use plastics. I wonder if you have any thoughts around how we know that we're doing it right. Yeah, well, I, I think it comes to a lot of the issues you've been talking about here, which is that we have to think about this holistically. We have to think about it from a full life cycle analysis, right? I mean, you know, all the pricing that we're seeing of, of many products, whether it's in fashion or other things, they're not real, right? The price maybe says... What does this piece of the process want to charge a customer because the market will bear it and it covers that person's costs or that entity's costs with, you know, with enough um, profit? And, and we need to think more holistically about this full, the full life cycle ownership because, again, at the end of the day, we're all going to pay for it one way or another. 
right? If we aren't thinking about those, about the cost of fast fashion or the cost of you know, packaging, we're going to pay for that back in, at conferences like this, where we say, how are governments going to pay for this all? We have to find the solutions. Thank you very much. Um, I was wondering if you have a final message that you'd like to leave with us today. Um, sure. I, you know, I guess I would just say that a lot of times when people talk about finance, it feels like this sort of big and personal, faraway thing that is something that you know billionaires who can afford to go into space might care about, but that's not really an issue for kind of regular folk. And I would just say that I think those those small the the, the small signals really do matter. I mean, you were saying this before about small signals, right? Small signals, small particles, those things really do all matter. And so when you, so in a couple ways, you, a, you know, you have consumers saying, no, I don't want to buy that particular item if it's going to end up as trash. That does really trickle up to chief marketing officers, to chief revenue officers, to chief financial officers. When you have um, citizens urging um, action on a policy front to have implications for waste that ends up in the wrong places, that ends up being something that a general counsel should think about, that a chief financial officer should think about from a liability perspective. Um, and that increasingly, I think that now individuals have an incredible power not only to choose you know, the shade-grown coffee versus the non-ethically sourced coffee, but also with their investments. Right now, just just to give you one example, when 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 we started on this journey of sustainable investing like 12 years ago, and we started creating products and portfolios, we were really excited that at one point we created um, these one-click portfolios that an investor could say, okay, do you want to have all the benefits that you know finance gives you of diversification, different asset classes, different managers, and you could do it with sustainability. At the first time we did it, like uh, this was maybe eight years ago, the minimum investment was $600,000. If you wanted to be in the, you know, the fixed income and the equity one, or only four hundred thousand dollars for the all equity solution, we've gotten that down now to five thousand um, dollars. And so, really, pretty much anyone, you know, coming out and starting investing can say, "Yep, I want that. I want a gender-focused uh, issue or a climate action-focused one, and and all of those things." And um, you know, and recently we did one specifically around ocean health. $10,000 minimum investment for a portfolio really focused on companies thinking about ocean health as an integral part of how they did things. It was the it was one of the single fastest growing products that Morgan Stanley has ever put on the wealth management platform, sustainable or otherwise. So I would think it's really clear that every time you make one of those decisions, whether it's choosing you know a beautiful dress or your fibers or an investment, that it does actually really matter. Um, and that increasingly people are finding more and more ways to make that really accessible. So I would say to, to your point, the small things matter and they really do send a signal up the, up the spider web. That was Audrey Choi, Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Sustainability Officer at Morgan Stanley, speaking to Ella Headley at the Circular Economy Cafe at the New York Times Climate Hub held alongside COP26. You can find out more about the Foundation's activities at COP26, as well as the companies mentioned in this episode in the show notes below. We'll be back with more inspiration and information on the circular economy soon. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation Circular Economy Podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.